0: You've just found your survival guide for the new reality of business. From technical advances to motivation and leadership, workplace changes are happening all around us. How can CEOs, leaders, and managers accelerate talent development, reshape culture, and succeed with purpose? By seeing what's coming and making the personal and organizational choices to do better. Welcome to the Future Proof Workplace with Linda Sharkey and Morag Barrett.
1: Thanks for joining the show today. I, uh, wow, it's been a heck of a week, hasn't it,
2: Morag? Oh, definitely. It seems like time's flying. And last week, it was all around diversity in the
1: headlines. And this week, we've just raised the stakes further. Oh, we definitely have. I mean, it, it, it has been a... If people don't think that leadership matters and what leaders do matter... What happened this week uh, in Charlottesville and the repercussions around the world is clearly an example of the need for value-based leadership and moral leadership. I couldn't agree
2: more. I think uh, it's easy for us all to say and create the pretty posters around what leadership means. But in the face of challenging opinions, when emotions are high, um, that's when the true metal is shown. Can you actually walk the talk and stand by those values
1: and the consequences that go with them? Yeah. And, you know, if you think that people don't pay attention to what you say as a leader, they pay incredible amount of attention to every they're watching everything that you do and that's why it's so important for a leader to be authentic a leader to be value based and really understand their values in a very what i would call gut level so that it's 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 part of who they are as as people i think mm-hmm. we're missing some of that right now
2: I think we are, and also there is still an illusion that uh, inconsistency doesn't matter. But since we're all armed now with the proverbial pernicious uh, smartphone, and it seems to me that many of us have this budding desire to be paparazzi in action. You're never short of a a quick photo click or a video click away from having inconsistencies broadcast to the world, and so it becomes more important to be vigilant in the moment, can yeah. you articulate your values before things get tough, but when things get tough, can you then stand tall, keep your cool, and then role model them and
1: communicate them effectively? Yeah. And, you know, there's another thing that's sort of going on is 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 really your values all about money, or are they really about making things better for people and making people's lives better mm-hmm. uh, and 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 helping people live their full potential? And I think that's a serious question we have on the table right now.
2: It is a serious one. And you explored this in our book, The Future Proof Workplace, yes. that the underlying or the uh, the predominant style and focus was all about bottom line in the 20th century. And my first career in banking reinforced it. It was all about the dollars or the pounds or the euros. It doesn't matter whichever currency is important. And the how of business tended to get undervalued, mislabeled the soft skills. But as you and I know, it doesn't matter how good the widget or service, how good the spreadsheet and the cash flow forecast, every hard, tangible side of business, whatever industry you're in, will always be sabotaged, will always be undermined if there isn't the same care and attention given to the values and how business gets done.
1: Yeah, I think that's really true. And, you know, it's kind of fortuitous because we have with us today, Dr. Tony O'Driscoll. Now, we invited Tony a couple of weeks ago to be on the show, so we knew he was coming on. We had no idea that this week was going to give such a backdrop of a glaring dearth of leadership in the world. And uh, so it's exciting to have Tony with us. Um kind of perfect that you're on right now, Tony. Tony is the global head of Duke Corporate Education Labs and a lecture fellow at Duke Duke University's Fuqua School of Business. Uh, Tony has an illustrious career. He's worked uh, many years at IBM, done lots of strategy, lots of leadership development, is what I would call a real global thinker and leader in what it takes to lead today. And so, Tony, I can't thank you enough to be for being on the show. And I think it's such a good segue because you're all about purpose and values. So thanks for joining us.
3: Great to be here, Linda. Thanks so much for having me.
1: So, Tony, tell me why? Why have you shifted uh, your thinking about leadership development or leadership more to the aspirational side? I think we definitely agree with you, Morag and I, but to more of about purpose, identity, and values.
3: Yeah, you know, at Duke Corporate Education, we have the opportunity to work at a, on a very large scale with leadership systems all around the world. So we'll do about. 800 programs a year. And so the shift hasn't really come deliberately from our perspective. It's more based on an observation that when we work with the most senior of leaders all around the world today, their focus and attention is much more on the purpose, identity, and values of the organization that will endure and sustain them over time than it is on the strategy. So, you know, when, when Duke C was first founded... Our tagline was strategy execution through education. And our focus and emphasis was on a belief that if everybody clearly understood the strategy of the organization, uh, that execution would follow and the firm would succeed. My observation, having had the, the great privilege of, of working and speaking with leaders around the world today, is that they no longer find stability in strategy Because strategy, by definition, is changing a whole lot quicker in this volatile world we live in. And so they are seeking higher ground. And that higher ground, by definition, then, is existential. Why are we here? What will we stand for and what will we not stand for? How does the customer and our employee identify with us as an entity? And how do we ensure that those enduring qualities of purpose, value, and identity remain true no matter what we end up doing? So that's really the, the kind of motivation for us to work with leaders to get a real clear sense of purpose, identity, and values.
1: You know, you were talking the other day uh, when we were chatting about, you know, you were doing recently some interviews with some CEOs and you gave some examples of how CEOs are thinking about their role. And I thought it was pretty interesting. I'll, can you say more about that, Tony?
3: Sure. So, so you know, one of the great privileges of working in this particular role, where, where I get to engage with the most senior leaders in organizations around the world, is that I'm not in a strategy role like I was at IBM, where they're asking you know the, the team to come up and develop a strategy for them to execute. It's a much more open conversation about the aspiration that these leaders have for the organization. And so... Many times I've been privileged to be, you know, asked to interview CEOs in front of in front of their their employees, and two two big ones come to mind, particularly in the light of what's just happened this week. Um, with one CEO who was leading a financial services organization in India, and you know what you got to understand about India is just the, the pace and scale of change there is dramatic on every dimension. Modi coming into that country has really kind yeah. of did it with uh, a passion and energy yeah. Uh, And I said to him, you know, when you go to bed at night, how do you know whether or not you are delivering as the chief executive of this organization? And and immediately he said, "Oh, that's really easy. It's one simple equation. Have I unlearned more than I learned today? Because as fast as things are moving and as quickly as things are changing, if I have not unlearned more than I've learned, I am not going to be the kind of CEO this company needs. And I think that exhibited some humility, in terms of recognizing that your past experience can be value added, but sometimes it can also be a limiting factor because your prior world may no longer apply. So I thought that was really interesting.
2: And it's interesting because you talk about how the world of work, we're moving from a complicated world, certainly to a complex world. And in that, uh, as I was listening to you there, you were talking about the importance of unlearning as much as learning. But for many of us, certainly at the senior levels, getting the feedback on which habits and behaviors we might be successful in spite of, is actually quite tough. So how do, how do we help not just the CEOs of organizations, but each of us to get past those blind spots to understand where we need to relearn, learn new or unlearn? What's your experience in that, Tony?
3: Yeah, I, I think that's a really interesting one, Morag. Um a, Another anecdote from a CEO, uh, this was not in a public forum. We were just having a conversation. Again, IT industry undergoing massive change here in the United States and said, you know, he, he looked at me and kind of then looked down and said, you know, I know my past experience counts for something, but I don't know which part of that experience is relevant.
1: <laughs> yeah, and so that's this, great.
3: You know, the imposter syndrome that people talk about is, I think about the talking head song, how did I get here? I, I felt that uh, the senior leader was saying, I find myself in a situation." Uh, that, that where, where, where the, the kind of complexity is so high and my own perceived capability to deal with it is low. And at the same time, I know my experience must count for something, but I'm not sure which part. And so this becomes a very difficult uh, and complex challenge to navigate. There's not just an equation or an algorithm that can solve this because at the end of the day, um, leadership is human. And humans are complex, not complicated.
1: Yeah. So, Tony, uh, you know what? I, I as I listen to this, I think you're you're talking about too that uh, you know the whole leadership model that we have has got to change from this top-down hierarchical view of of the world. Because as you talk about this, there's a lot of polarities and 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 not either or, but ands. And so, could you? Describe for our audience your uh, center leadership uh, model and, and how you think about leadership for today and the 21st century.
3: Yeah, there's a there's a lot to unpack in that question, because I, I think the first thing going back to Morag's question about, you know, it's really biases that, that our prior experience kind of cements biases, which are kind of a shorthand for, oh, this is how things work. I'll know what to do in the future. And so the past experience of leaders in getting to where they did today kind of cements into a set of, uh, you know, no longer surface assumptions in how to respond and how to react. And one of the things that I think most human beings on the planet, one of the biggest biases they have is when you say the word leader or you say the word leadership, uh, in our minds are conjured up, you know, uh, a mental model of a Mother Teresa or a Gandhi or a Churchill or, you know, insert your favorite leader here. And, and the issue with that particular mental model is that it's individualistic and hierarchical. That And normally it's associated with somebody who pulled us through a crisis, Rudy Giuliani. Uh, and so the fact that we have a kind of global mental model that has to do with an individual who seizes the day in a time of chaos and makes things better um, is a little bit misrepresentative of what's going on today because no single person on the planet could ever hope to fully comprehend the complexity that their organization is dealing with and so what we need today are leadership systems systems of leadership that can sense and respond to an increasingly volatile environment and make take collective action through ongoing experimentation grounded in values and purpose and that's a long that's a lot of things that i just said but it's a very at the at core it's a shift from individual competence to organizational capability
2: yeah I, I was reading about the uh, center leader and three elements that you pull out in in your article is around perceiving sense making and choreographing so choreographing as a ballroom dancer i immediately a picture dancing but i'm assuming that's not happening in boardrooms uh, in fortune 500 companies but tell me a little bit more about the choreographing because i think that builds on your point here that leadership no no longer can reside or even in um the answer to the problems can no longer reside in one individual so tell us more about the choreographing that you outlined in your article
3: yeah, the work we did there, Morag, was we went around the world and interviewed C- CEOs about what is it like to be a leader and, and you know, how do you navigate this increased complexity? Because we, we'd already figured out a couple of years ago that the world was going to become even more complex, not less. And unfortunately, we were right about that. Um, and and we, I, we uncovered seven different kind of competencies that we thought were important, but then they bubbled up into these three, what we call sensibilities, uh, and and, and the, the bottom line is that we learned is that leaders need to learn in context. So if content is king, context is the kingdom. And those leaders that are the most successful are, have the uncanny ability to parse the context, to perceive what's going on, to make sense of the totality of what's going on, and then to choreograph resource and capability and nudge this complex system in the direction it needs to go. Choreography, uh, if you think about a CEO of any company today, the paradox of technology, which I know is one of the factors you talk about in your book, is the more connected we become, the less control we have. And that's true for senior executives of large corporations today as well. There's so much dependency on partnerships and supply chains that the CEO might have control or perceived control over their organization – but, you know, one 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 factory that goes under or one chip that doesn't work in this massive distribution ecosystem for something like Apple can cause huge consternation. So choreography is about how do I influence and nudge complex adaptive systems without control? Because mm-hmm. in complex world, power base moves from position power, reward power, coercion power. I have control over you to knowledge and referent power, who you know and what you know. And that's what lubricates a complex adaptive system, which is precisely what business is today.
2: Who you know, so it's relationship driven. It was interesting, you, you mentioned at the beginning there that you had interviewed CEOs around the world and started to do, identify competencies that then bubbled up. So tell me, competencies, big business in the 20th century, to what extent do they still have a part to play in the 21st century?
3: Um, you know, I, I, I think that in, in today's world, the world of from to is kind of not as representative as the world of both and, right? So in a way for us to make an abductive leap of faith, which means we're going to jump from one context to another, sometimes requires that we, you know, um, let go of everything in the past. My point of view on this one is, Competencies alone are insufficient. Why? Because the unit of analysis for competency is the individual leader. And we ask the individual leader, or we determine through some kind of psychometric instrumentation, where the individual leader's gaps are. And then we assume that if we fill up those gaps of all the individual leaders in an organization, we'll automatically have a leadership system that allows us to have the organization continue to prosper and grow. And I don't believe that that's the case. You definitely need individual leadership competency, but that needs to then get integrated into a a leadership system capability that's organization-wide. So I I believe that they're still there and they're important, but they're one part of a much bigger development puzzle for how we create the leaders we need for an uncertain tomorrow.
1: Yeah. And, you know, Tony, I think the interesting question is, what are the competencies that... uh, people are going to need in the future. And and the argument can often be it's much more of the soft skills that people are going to need because we don't really know what the jobs are going to even look like two years from now, three years from now. So we're coming up on a break. Um, When we get back, we're going to be talking, continuing to talk to Tony about. So how do we develop these kinds of leaders that can be agile, center driven, uh, about others and not necessarily themselves who can choreograph um so stay with us we're talking to tony odriscoll uh from duke corporate education
0: ever wondered if your career will last will your job be around in 10 years five years or even tomorrow The Future Proof Workplace with Linda Sharkey and Morag Barrett gives you practical tips and tools that are not only fact-based and proven to make you a better leader, but will also ensure that both your organization and career are future-proof. Linda Sharkey and Morag Barrett are sought-out keynote speakers, leadership development and organization experts, and they can help you future-proof your career. To learn more about everything they have to offer you and your organization, visit futureproofworkplace.com.
1: Welcome back. We're talking to Dr. Tony O'Driscoll, a wealth of knowledge and information about leadership, about organizations and the paradoxes and the polarities that we all are living in today and how we can navigate and manage the and uh, of the world that we're in. So, Tony, how are you approaching um, leadership development now?
3: Yeah, you know, I think this is this is a, a really challenging question because, you know, um, I could share a quick story about my my son. We he, when he was in fifth grade, uh, he had to do a class project and we live in North Carolina. So he's he's um, he, his challenge was to figure out how the lost colony became lost. So a lot of oh people God. disappeared from the lost calling. So we, we, we trucked down there in July. I'm from Ireland. I don't do heat. Very well, very hot, humid day. Uh, and we went down there and my son was just totally determined to figure out how did all these people at the lost calling disappear. And so we went into the first building and my son says, daddy, daddy, what did they do in here? And I said, well, this is, this is, uh, uh, where they've made horseshoes and that's the anvil. And this is the hammer and this is the metal. And it's like, well, dad, why did they make horseshoes? And, uh, I said, well, that's how they got around. They used horses. And he says, well, maybe that's why everybody disappeared. They didn't have minivans. I said, okay, is that your answer? He said, no, no, no. Let's do some more research. We went into another building. He said, Daddy, Daddy, what are they doing here? I said, this is where they made clothes. Here's where they sheared the sheep. Here's where they turned it into fabric. Here's where they sewed clothes. It's like they couldn't get in their minivan and go to Walmart and buy a Star Wars t shirt. Maybe they all (laughs) froze.
1: Too funny.
3: Right Then we go into one more building and say, what, what do they do in here? And I said, well, this is the bakery. This is the wheat and the chaff and the grist and the mill and the bellows and the fire and so on and so forth. He said, Dad, I got it. I got it. They must have all starved to death. And I said, great. Is that your final answer? They either froze to death or starved to death, right? Because, it, uh, you know, th- that's it. He said, yes, you've got enough for your port. Wonderful. We're walking back towards the Coca-Cola sign. I can taste it. I am so thirsty. We pass this really one more big building. Daddy, Daddy, can we please go in here? Can we please go in here? please, if you have a child, you know what I'm talking about, being a good dad. I said, okay, we walked in and I'm waiting for the barrage of questions to come at me, Linda, right? And it's complete silence. (laughs) What's going on? And he goes, oh, I know what this is. It's a school. Ooh. (laughs) And so what dawned on me there as an educator is We talk about all this technology that has fundamentally transformed every industry and how all these leaders have to unlearn what they learned before because it's no longer valid in a world where, you know, what is Apple computer? Is it a media company? Is it a computer company? Is it a phone company? The answer is yes to everything. Um, And yet I work in an industry that has not changed in any visible way, except blackboards turned into whiteboards since the time of Socrates. And so... The educational paradigm of preaching from the pulpit and, you know, regurgitation on tests has been so dominant in our in our view of what learning and development means that it's actually now getting in the way of building leadership system capability, because I don't believe that just digitizing the content of, from MBA schools and putting it up on something like Khan Academy or putting it up on a MOOC is solving the problem. Because that's productive learning. That's teaching people how to do things we know how to do. And what we need more than anything right now, even particularly in this week, is generative learning, which is solving problems we don't even know how to solve because we didn't know they'd be there until this week.
2: And I think, and that's, Bill, that's, yeah, I, I mean, that's powerful. I, I couldn't agree more. And as the mo- mother of three teenage boys, two of whom are currently in university, we're, I'm seeing that bridge between the rote system that has stood us in good stead for two millennia and the need for learning and critical thinking at our fingertips. Because the argument could be why go to university for four years if I just need to know which keywords to put into Google to then sift fact from fiction and then from the details I get be able to synthesize that and apply it to the problem at hand. But and you've just taken exactly it a leap further.
3: Yeah, yeah. That's what, but Mark, that's what I mean by leading in context. It's mm-hmm. the discernment to know… When to take action and agency in a particular context, it's more important than the content itself. Sorry sorry to interrupt, but that's that's a key point.
2: No, it's huge. But also then that throws up new issues because again, we don't know what we don't know. So we mm. don't know we have an issue that needs us to change our game, whether that's my leadership style or the organizational structure or process. But I remember earlier in my career in the 90s, uh, the institution, the bank I was working with, uh, trying to introduce the concept of knowledge management, a technolog- technological database to capture the knowledge within all employees, so that once I had made that breakthrough thinking, um, we could share it with all x thousands or tens of thousands of employees, so that they could all benefit. I remember
1: those days.
2: Yeah, and uh, <laughs> we didn't crack the nut. Let's be clear, we didn't yeah, crack right. the nut. It got, it became very unwieldy, unwieldy very quickly. But when it comes to learning, Tony, what are you starting to see the grassroots shoots of that are going to help do that? To help us have the awareness of where we have to be nimble in the moment but also then how do we cascade and share with others who don't yet know that they don't know that there was a problem and here's an answer
3: yeah very just just I was going down memory lane because I you know my dissertation was on the thing that we didn't even know was called knowledge management yet and then I went to work with Larry Prusak and Tom Davenport and Rob Cross and others at IBM at the Institute for Knowledge Management where you know with Lotus, we were trying to say, let's let's build a system. I, I think it comes down, again, to orthodoxy, right? So we have an orthodoxy about learning, where we think learning equals training. And then we have an orthodoxy about development that says development equals closing gaps. Um, and, and again, by definition, that's all around an individual. And I'm not saying, what I'm not saying is that individuals do not have gaps that need to be closed. But what I am saying is that is just the beginning of a very long journey to creating a leadership system that can sense and respond in real time to unanticipated events, because that's how the world is today, and respond as a system so that from top to bottom and left to right, top to bottom, what I mean by we have to change a strategy, which might change how we execute, and left to right, which means we need to tweak a system structure or process and convince and engage people in wanting to change their behavior to fulfill that process. And that's why we call it leading from the center. Uh, one play on leading on the center is the leaders are centered in purpose and identity and values. The other okay. place leading from the center is that your vantage point is most effective from the center. How's the strategy going to change and how do we mitigate the you know changes in the environment and how is it being executed and is it possible to be executed and Either one of those, if the answer is no, well, what must we change in a system structure or process, organizationally, to reposition ourselves for advantage? And last, and most importantly, is and how do we continue to engage our people to deliver and contribute their discretionary effort to doing this work when they're suffering from change fatigue? That's all of a leader today.
2: I hear you. And it's not just the change fatigue. It's the running on the hamster wheel. And just generally, I'm too busy to stop and learn. And a misperception that to slow down to learn is actually slowing down. And I know Linda and I often hear from clients, you know, that's great. We definitely want to learn X, Y and Z. But can we do it in half a day? Or oh, in fact, can we do it in two hours? So how are you at Duke balancing the need for bite-sized in the moment learning, the just on demand learning, but also the reality that when it becomes comes to behavioural skills, sometimes you have to and often have to invest time and effort to go into unlearning and learning. So how are you at Duke balancing the need for the quick fix buffet fast food learning approach to the that this requires guided practice and discipline.
3: Yeah. I, again, I think it comes down to if you if you think about the ability of technology now today, and I, I was I, I led learning strategy and performance for IBM, so so we had a lot of technology at the time, and so our, our mental model there was the following rule: sometimes people just need instructions, not instruction. So, in other words. You'd, it's not a great thing when you've got a big line of people waiting for a course. It might be good if you're running a training uh, organization, but it's not good for the for the for the organization if there's a if there's a if there's a, a gap if there's a part on the critical path where people aren't learning what they need. Technology now allows you to you know, provide instructions as you go. So why do I need to learn how to read a map, right? And try to remember the the how to get from LaGuardia to to IBM Armonk headquarters. When I now have a Waze application that not only gives me point by point instructions on what to do, but also diverts me around a traffic jam that I would never have known about. So, in some instances, for productive learning, it's far easier to now embed the learning right into the flow of work and not ever need to have a course in the first place. Gloria Gary, who is a great mentor of mine, said that about 90% of training is comp- compensatory for poor organization design. And so, and so the problem. So, so you know, that's one problem. Now, when you talk about leadership, though, I actually think leadership has a lot more to do with mindset than it does with skill set and tool set. And so, what we try to do at Duke Corporate Education is work very clearly on what the collective mindset is about the aspiration of the leadership team to take the organization to new heights most of the time. And any kind of content that we're sharing is essentially a foil to bring us back to that discussion. We, we talk about the what, the so what, and the now what. What, here's what, I don't know, tech digital transformation looks like. Here's how you, here's what an organizational network analysis looks like. So what does this mean for you and your aspiration for your company? Now, what are you going to do more better or differently as a leadership system to, to start the, the, the organization moving in the direction you want to move in? So it's all about context.
1: Yeah, I think there's an element here too of um, uh, sort of self discovery because I've found with leaders, they often, if they're in a room together and they have a great, uh, a whole system approach or thinking, they have somebody sort of leading that kind of discussion, that learning from each other in real time can be extremely powerful. So I'd like to talk to you more about that, Tony, uh, because some of these are cultural issues. And um, I think we have to talk a little bit about how the culture comes into play here. And you you cite that a lot in in, in the things that you write about. So we're coming up to break. Stay with us. We're talking to Tony O'Driscoll, Dr. Tony O'Driscoll, from Duke Corporate Education uh, Labs and uh, Leadership Labs. And we'll be back uh, talking about the role of organizational culture. And some of us in the learning and development profession have to rethink our Uh, Tools and how we bring people to that next level of learning.
0: We all know that leaders who build talent, care about their people, and create healthy organizations are the people that others want to work for and with. Raise your own bar and future-proof your organization with the Future-Proof Workplace. Whether you're a CEO, manager, or just trying to survive the chaos, the Future Proof Workplace is your wake-up call. Because, let's face it, the future is now. Linda Sharkey and Morag Barrett are sought-out keynote speakers, leadership development and organization experts, and they can help you start future-proofing your organization. To learn more about everything they have to offer you and your organization, visit futureproofworkplace.com.
1: Welcome back. Give us your thoughts, Tony, on organizational culture. We, we, we left with that, and I think it's very powerful in what we're trying to do today.
3: Yeah, you know, uh, I, I loved your book, and I think one of the six factors of change you talk a lot about is about culture. And, and I think, to me, culture is kind of the sigma of a whole bunch of things. But whether we like it or not, leadership behavior, which is another one of your factors— it is a big driver of culture. In fact, we've just been doing some research at Duke to try to say things like structure. Uh, they don't really. The structure is perpetually out of phase with the reality of the marketplace. So if you say you're going to change your structure, sure, that doesn't really. You know, it, it might. The market doesn't wait around for you to catch up structurally to what it used to be. It just keeps going. So you're in this. Um, it's like a cartoon, you know, the cartoon where, where Roadrunner runs over the cliff and it's still running and then it kind of drops to the ground. Structure seems to be the easiest lever to pull, but the most ineffective because it's always out of sync. Mm-hmm. But what I found is change leadership behavior, as you talk about in your book, moving from command and control to being flexi- flexible, flexible, people focused and values based. That's a big shift and it's a noticeable shift. And as you said on the way in, people notice because people always look to leadership in times of uncertainty, good or bad, as you talked about at the the top of the show. Um, So culture then becomes kind of a, a reification of what's observed in the workplace. And what I'm seeing with culture today is if organizations truly do become grounded in purpose and values and that there is a congruence between The values and aspirations of the organization and the individual values and aspirations of the people, that unlocks a huge amount of discretionary effort. Because people find meaning in their work through the through the behavior of leaders who are showing that it's okay for you. to learn to lead on purpose. If I could, I'd love to share an example that is so crystal clear about this, but let me just pause there to see if any questions on on purpose and how I see them relating to your two first factors of change, leadership and culture.
2: Morag. No, I mean, I was just listening. I'm curious to hear what the story is because often those can help bring these concepts to life. So tell us your story and yes. then I'll follow up with a question, I promise.
3: Okay, so so the story is of um, before coming back to the United States, I was in Singapore leading due Corporate Education's efforts uh, in, in uh, Asia. And um, I had the great benefit of working with a, a insurance company called uh, IAG, Insurance Australia Group. Oh, now, I know that group. Oh, do you? So they. Yeah. Okay, great. So, so Peter Harmer, who's now the CEO, was was, was the person I'm talking about here. Wonderful, yeah. wonderful man. Um. So, if you don't know anything about Australia, uh, uh, they are undergoing a lot of kind of geographic challenges: uh, bushfires, floods, and then the earthquake in Christchurch, which left 1,200 build- buildings in the in the in the central business district essentially unhabitable. And so. What that meant from an actuarial perspective was that essentially the actuarial models that all of the insurance business were built upon fell apart because the VUCA world had a different had a different opinion. Well, that hey, Tony
2: also- B- Tony, I'll just interrupt you there. VUCA, you just used a phrase there. Can you just define that in case some of our listeners are going, "Huh? Is that an Australian or an Irish phrase?" <laughs> Sorry, uh,
3: yeah. VUCA comes from military, uh, where the military was the first to kind of identify the nature of the context they were operating in, volatile. Uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. And so that
2: sums up the 21st century for sure.
1: Certainly does.
2: And so um,
3: IAG's purpose up until this particular moment I'm about to share had been the following IAG is here to help you manage risk and recover from the hardship of unanticipated loss.
1: Mm.
3: And that is precisely what they did, Mm -hmm. right? Manage risk, how how much insurance should you buy on your car and on your house and so on and so forth. And then if bad things happen, we will help you recover from the hardship of unanticipated loss. But, you know, it's kind of you have to peel your tongue off the roof of your mouth after you hear it. And it doesn't really instill a lot of passion.
1: Right. right? Right.
3: Um, Well, very unfortunately, there was a terrible bushfire uh, and Mike Wilkins, who was the CEO prior to Peter Harmer, was flown in on a he- helicopter right after emergency services took care of the incident, uh, along with a major general who was in charge of of the relief effort. When he landed, he said it was like a it was like a movie scene. and And he said he got off the helicopter, and there was one road, and all he could see all the way down that road into the horizon, were chimneys and mailboxes because the chimneys were made of brick and the mailboxes were made of metal. Everything else was wood. And so everything had been burned to the ground. That that alone was not sufficient to really get, get him emotionally. But on every one of those mailboxes was a red ribbon. And he turned to the mm. major general and said, what does a red ribbon signify what I think it signifies? And he said, yes, that means there was a fatality in the home. And he said, as far as see all the way down to the end uh, there was a fatality and he said at that moment in time I recognized that we were no longer an insurance company because you know all of the external insurers were going to exit the marketplace and that this organization now had a new purpose and the new purpose is we make your world a safer place
1: wow Wow! that is a powerful story powerful story how do you think it changed a uh, the the company? How did it change how they uh, began to a- align themselves?
3: Well, so so you know this is a long long story, but I I want to pull something out that's directly related to how you identify culture, where you say you know the twenty first century attribute is its values driven and it's embedded into organization decision making. Okay. Yeah. So uh, imagine you were asking how we work with leaders. We work with we work with leadership teams over time, and, and and in this instance, we had the great great benefit and pleasure of working with this leadership team through this entire transition, six five six years. Mm-hmm. Um, a couple of years in, we we would have we would have uh, they, they they used a very design thinking type approach, very agile type approach to doing things, but they would have people come in to talk about what is it like to work in this new way if you're if you're leading on purpose. Because Mike's belief was, if you were clear on purpose, decisions were very simple. If you knew what the purpose was, the decision was clear. So here's an example. The example is an elderly lady who um, was a widower, who did not have you know, most of her faculties around her anymore, and certainly was not up on technology, had missed a payment. She'd been a customer for 30 years, uh, and her house went down. And the person who took that call took the decision to pay out and went to the CEO and said, Look, if we're really about making your world a safer place, that was a very simple decision. Mm
1: -hmm.
3: But if what you're about is shareholder value, that was an incorrect decision.
1: Yep.
2: Yep. That's exactly what we're talking about, right? It's the. It's the and, isn't it? It's not just about doing things right. It's and doing the right thing. Yeah, And in the past, when we were very rules driven, that mispayment would have been an immediate disqualification, tough luck. Yeah, that sucks. But you know what? You missed the payment and it's the customer's fault. But when you look at it now with the values based of what's right for that individual, for the community, for this organization, it changes the answer. Right. And, and that's powerful. I get goosebumps just listening to that story right. there, Tony. Thank you for sharing.
1: Uh, it's a great part story.
3: Part the leadership uh, system was, okay, that, that's one instance of a story, but if everybody behaved that way, IAG wouldn't we got stuff. business. <laughs>
1: yeah.
3: So, so this is where this new, you know, you talk about this in your book in terms of leadership and culture, but the organizing principles, relationships, diversity, inclusion, technology. One of the problems with technology you talk about in your book, you know, it used to be all about process improvement focus. In that particular instance, you could have automated the whole process and said, oh, lady lapsed, therefore. All right, done. Yeah, done. And, and so sometimes technology can actually contribute because what used to be a core competency in a time that was developed before volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity, now becomes a rigidity that blinds you from seeing new opportunity. Right. And blinds now you, you from the
1: see- context.
3: Yeah. And it's and and now you've instantiated it in technology to where you're not even humanly aware. It's just baked into the system. Yeah. And that's a big issue.
1: It is a huge issue. And I think this is what people are starting to realize, because there are some people who are looking at uh, developing artificial intelligence that has empathy and can kind of do that human piece but they're not having very much success. So I, it, it does say that, you know, as we get more technology driven, and that's going to happen because you're probably next time you get off and try to go to Armonk, you're going to be in a self-driving car. But yeah. what you can't do is take away that sort of human context, decision making, empathy that, that people bring to work. And I think that's a really critical factor that we haven't figured that out yet.
2: No, indeed. So, Tony, I mean, we've covered a lot in our conversation, and it's really piqued my curiosity. But for the people listening who may be experienced leaders or relatively new leaders, have large teams, or maybe they just lead themselves, could you at this point just summarize what are the three things that you think that we all need to be paying attention to to make us center leaders for the 21st century? What are the three things?
3: I'll say that three things are that leaders need to consistently be reframing what they see and questioning their assumptions. Yeah. That they need to approach every situation with what we call a beginner's mindset. Uh, because if you approach it that way and then you say, nope, absolutely, my prior experience applies, at least you've asked the question. But if you just go on autopilot, you could miss a trick. So reframing what you see as the very first uh, instance of encountering a problem. I think it's Einstein that said a problem is in the simplest form the first time you encounter it. It's also true that you can reframe a problem based on your biases the minute you encounter it, and you can be solving the wrong problem. Right. The second thing I think is really important for leaders today is to rewire how you think. Because in, in a world where things were not VUCA, where they were stable and predictable, things are reducible to a set of practices and principles. We talk a lot about best practices, right? And if we just apply those best practices, we can get a repeatable and definable and valid output. Um, that's not the case anymore. The world is full of unanticipated consequences. Exhibit A would be the top of this show when we talked about it. nobody had any idea I would say, probably including our president, what was going to happen yesterday morning following a press conference, right? Or I what think was you're going right. to China, and therefore the because we're so connected, the the global scale of unanticipated consequence cause a whip, can cause a whipsaw effect. So we have to rewire how we think about systems as being complex and having these feedback loops that can be positive or negative. And the last thing I would say is we have to think about reconfiguring what we do and how we do it. And most of that is with and through people over whom we do not have control. That could be I have to work with my supply chain. That could be that I'm working in a project-based way in my my job. So the the power source for leadership today is more about the networks and the connections and the relationships, which you talk about so eloquently in your book, than it is about I'm the boss of you and you do what I say or there will be consequences because that's not how leadership should operate. So in fact, I think we need to fundamentally just revisit our, our, our very mental model of what leadership is. And I encourage us to think of it as a more systemic and human endeavor that's collective rather than individual.
1: I love it, Tony. Thank you. Yeah, I do too. It was really great. I think we are coming to uh, the conclusion of our show. And um, I really want to thank you so much, Tony, for participating. And and it was an enlightening conversation, as I always find conversations with you enlightening. And everything you write always makes me... It causes me to, to think and, and uh, challenge my own assumptions, which, which I love. So if people want to get a hold of you, how, how do they get a hold of you, Tony?
3: Oh, just put my name into Google. That's something that's easily findable. As academics, it's, uh, it's, it's really easy to find me. I've got a Duke email out there and a, and a, and a Dukesie email out there, so I'm very easily found.
1: Well, you're doing some really fabulous work, and we're excited to be uh, associated with you. Last word, Morag? No, just thank you again,
2: Tony. Uh, beginner mindset is what you've triggered in me here today, yeah. and that sense of curiosity as we move forward to break some of the, the patterns and comfort zones that we all get into to make sure we're changing our game so that we can play our game better. But thank you for sharing your wisdom and insight today.
1: It was great. Thank you so much. So we have just uh our next show coming up. Uh we have a, a best-selling author Barbara Annis uh coming on to talk about what is really a a little interesting twist on diversity. Part of our as you know, if you've read our book Future Proof Workplace, part of one of the factors that we think is critically changing is uh diversity and creating a sense of belonging. And our discussion is really going to focus around what men can do to support and champion the advancement of women in leadership roles. Uh, You know, we've always said they have to do things, and many of them have done things over the years. But this is really a, a recipe of specifics and what men can do in leadership roles Of any organization, wherever they are, to help advance and champion women and people who are of diverse backgrounds into new and more advanced career opportunities. So, Morag, uh, great show again. Thanks, Linda. See you next week. See you next week. Stay with us next week.
0: This has been the Future Proof Workplace with Linda Sharkey and Morag Barrett. To learn about the hosts or to get more resources on future-proofing your organization, visit futureproofworkplace.com. Thanks for listening.